On November 3, 2016, cultural historian Dr. Victoria Coates delivered a lecture entitled, How Democracy Inspired the West. The address was delivered as part of the 2016 Acton Lecture Series in the Mark Murray Auditorium of the Acton Building in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. Here now with her address is Dr. Victoria Coates. I'd like to begin this talk by telling you a little bit about why I wrote David's Sling. Um, I'd like to make a little bit of a shameless plug for the discipline of art history, and then we'll look at a couple of objects in the book in a little more depth, and I'd be happy to answer any questions that you may have. In terms of defining civilization, which is the title of this talk, um, David Sling will be part of a trio of books that examines the three pillars of the West, as I've identified them. Democracy, which is this one, the Judeo-Christian moral code, that'll be a history of Christianity, actually in 12 works of art. Um, and then the one that's furthest down the pipeline will be about the individual, it'll be about self-portraiture and autobiography, two things that are uh, exclusive to the West. And the goal is to trace the development of these core, core principles through the extraordinary creative achievements that they inspired. And I'll be talking about this a little bit more in a few weeks at the uh, conference Acton is hosting in London and how these three projects will fit together. Um, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of that context going in. The basic point of David's slang and of this talk is to trace the remarkable historical synergy between liberty and creative excellence. And it's important to note at the top that it is not to suggest that this is an exclusive arrangement that only free systems can create great art, as both religion and empire also have inspired masterpieces. And if you take a stroll around the Pantheon or you glance at Las Meninas, you know this to be the case. But it occurred to me as I was thinking about this project that the mighty and powerful should create great art. What is surprising about the 10 objects under discussion in David's sling is that they were produced at all, given their very unlikely sources. Uh, if you know, Athens was a barren rock, and I should start my... This all happens automatically now and makes me a little bit nervous, so if something goes wrong behind me, please let me know. <laughs> Athens was a barren rock. Rome was a swamp. Venice and Holland were underwater for all intents and purposes. Great Britain was a tiny island. The United States was largely a wilderness. The beleaguered Spanish Republic was a government in exile. The only country of substantial size with a significant natural resource base and a well-established society, which would be France, was such an abject failure at democracy the first time around that they are the only country that required two chapters in this book to get it right. In addition, the objects themselves have been imperiled. They've been attacked with hammers and knives and spray paint. They've been forgotten and locked away. They've been buried as rubble and even blown up and physically dismembered. But created they were and survived they did, all of them self-consciously designed to commemorate the free state that commissioned them. And I found that when taken as a whole, they find, form a remar remarkable document of the history of free systems in the West. And this story has pictures. A word about art history. Our, our discipline has suffered in recent years, been dismissed as, super, as superfluous luxury that can be cut in difficult times, despite our relatively small size and low salaries. 
But as I hope this project illustrates, the study of our cultural heritage can offer unique insight into our history, as the objects can sometimes be as reliable or even more so than texts. We have also been the great beneficiaries of the technological age. I remember what seems to me not to be so many years ago at graduate school in Williams that not only did we have to have our slides selected and organized days if not weeks in advance, we also had to direct a, a projectionist to move them forward. And those slides had to be maintained in a library taking up physical space and several salaries. Now I can do my PowerPoint sitting on the floor of the Philadelphia airport during a flight delay, not that I would ever do such a thing. These advances have extended to publication as well, as 30 years ago, art history books were prohibitively expensive due to the cost of illustrations, which were, as a rule, small and unsatisfactory, and confined to dedicated signatures, not scattered through the text. And they were primarily sold by boutique booksellers at academic conferences or directly to institutions. This state of affairs had several unhappy outcomes. First, the getting published became an ever more cutthroat race after very limited resources, as topics became increasingly esoteric and inaccessible to the general public. Then, with no one but libraries buying the books, publishers got out of the business, making it even more of a challenge to publish. Almost exactly a decade ago, however, that began to change through the digital revolution, and now a small press-like encounter can publish a book like David's Sling, with 175 color illustrations scattered throughout and sell it for what I consider to be the very reasonable price of $29.99 on Amazon. So hopefully we will see a renaissance of art history. As my personal study story attests, focusing on this type of history does not automatically confine you to the classroom or the museum, although they're both very nice places. Rather than being an archaic holdover of the academic pa past, the discipline has the potential to lead the way into the more integrated, interdisciplinary lines of inquiry of the future. The background and context that can be gleaned from art history can be applied to a wide range of topics and is, in fact, quite topical in terms of current events, and we'll get back to that a little bit at the end of the talk. But first, I'd like to look at two objects from David's sling. Uh, I have only two children, but I sometimes refer to picking which objects we're going to highlight as picking between my kids, uh, because one of the unexpected delights of writing the book was how much I enjoyed all 10 of the objects. And the two we'll look at today are, of course, Michelangelo's David, which is in, in front of you, and then we will look at Beardstadt's uh, Rocky Mountains Landers Peak. And the David was the core of the book. It's what gave the book its name. Uh, and as you may know, David Sling is also the name of the next round of, uh, like next level rather, of Israeli missile defense. That's another story, um, which I know a great deal about if you're curious. But um, so I knew this was going to be part of it. And quite frankly, the Beardstadt was the chapter I dreaded the most because I know the least about American art. I wasn't certain about the time period, and I wasn't sure I was going to be interested in it. And I wound up absolutely adoring it. And I hope I can convey some of that to you. Um, now, when I picked the name David Sling, the reason I selected it is that, as, as you know, each of these objects commemorate a democracy. And democracy becomes, in that context, the sling, the artificial device by which the biblical shepherd triumphed over 
uh, the Philistine giant Goliath. So you have both David's pure faith and his sling, and that's what gets him uh, to victory over a seemingly insurmountable foe. And so that is a, a theme that reoccurs over and over in the book. And how I got to the, the broader topic was actually thinking about this statue and how most people think about it as the most beautiful statue ever produced by the greatest sculptor who ever lived. And it's generally considered an, as an aesthetic object, which of course it is. It is an extremely beautiful uh, piece of marble. And Michelangelo was an extraordinarily talented artist. And of course, he, uh, his story, his biography has become intertwined with this statue to the point that many people actually see it as something of a self-portrait. But interestingly, in context, while certainly Michelangelo did invite that kind of connection between the artist and his creation, he very much wanted to set up the kind of comparison between divine creation and human creation, which would result in a great work of art. The statue has an extraordinary political pedigree, which is deeply uh, intertwined with the history of the Florentine Republic. And just a couple of words of background about that. As you may know, Florence is established in about the 8th century as a commune, which does not, did not mean then what it means now. It more meant a sort of little proto-democracy city-state. It uh, claimed, the city claimed ancient Roman roots. They like to say they were founded by Julius Caesar. There is absolutely no evidence for this, actually quite a bit to the contrary, um, that it was probably a medieval institution. But a couple of interesting things happened here. Uh, as you know, central Italy abounds in dramatic hilltop towns with great sweeping vistas. Uh, Florence has nothing of the sort. It is flat, and it is by a river. In a way, it has some of the same uh, attractions as Grand Rapids. It's easy to get to, and it became a commercial center. And that became David's sling for Florence, as well as the fact that the Florentine Republic uh, survived the 14th century. As you may know, a bunch of bad things happened, like the Black Death in the 14th century disrupted most of the other medieval communes. But Florence perseveres as a democracy, has a less severe experience with the Black Death than some of its companions, such as Siena. And another quite wonderful thing happens, and I think this is particularly relevant to the studies here at Acton, which is Florence starts minting the first hard currency in Europe, and that's what you see on the far screen there, the Florentine Florin, uh, an enormously successful enterprise for the city, which becomes the de facto currency of Europe. And you start having Florentine financial businesses, banking houses develop, and pretty much the goal of the government was to preserve commerce. And the other great thing that they were doing in Florence was pr uh, producing luxury textiles. So they wanted to continue their manufacturing. And then begin to structure their laws to encourage sound financial practices. So there were bankruptcy regulations, uh, banking regulations that encouraged confidence in these institutions. And the production of wealth was correspondingly remarkable. And Florence develops uh, a huge amount of, of resources throughout the 14th and beginning of the 15th century which are then used to ornament the city because the Florentines are very conscious of what's going on. They believe that because they are a democracy, they are a republic, that they are better 
they're their compatriots. They attribute their success to that what they considered to be their moral rectitude, their purity of faith, and they start to ornament their city to reflect this. And one of the great uh, preceding and related projects to the David is the Florentine Duomo, uh, which, as you can see, dominates the city skyline then as now. This is something of a happy accident for the Florentines, because when they began this project uh, from the west end, building toward the east end, they had no idea how they were going to build that dome. Um, they knew they were going to have a big cavernous space, and they were hoping for a dome. But as you can see, this began at the end of the 13th century. It took them a while to get to the dome. Uh, but by the time they got there, they were and they were confident all throughout that when they got there, somebody would know how to do it. And fortunately, somebody did. Uh, Filippo Brunelleschi, the great 15th century architect who goes to Rome, develops one-point perspective so that he can study the Roman monuments, not just for their surface ornamentation, but for their structure. And he builds this extraordinary dome. And just as a sort of prelude to our main story, uh, one of the other things they decide they're going to do is put up a bunch of large-scale sculptures to ornament this dome. And in, around the time that it's completed, a huge block of marble, 13 feet high, the largest that had been quarried since antiquity, uh, was, was, uh, was quarried. And that came to the workshop by the Duomo, where a, a lot of people just sat there and stared at it and thought, what are we going to do with this thing? Meanwhile, as we move into the 1480s, as you may know, uh, democracies are frequently delicate and imperiled things. Oops, that's what's not supposed to happen. You go back. Uh, and the Medici family starts taking on an outsized, outsized political weight. And they do this very deliberately by installing all of their sympathizers in the, uh, in the uh, signoria, in the legislative body, and using their wealth uh, to increase their influence. And it was very much a first among equals type of arrangement. They always protested that they were hugely in favor of uh, the Florentine Republic, that they were just doing their civic duty. But increasingly, as we move through the 15th century, as they build this extraordinary palace, so much larger, more luxurious, uh, and more imperial than anything else, uh, ornamented by, for example, Gozzoli with this uh, uh, three magi fresco cycle uh, featuring Lorenzo the Magnificent as one of the kings, their intentions were not exactly subtle. And so Florent the Florentines became increasingly concerned by Medici encroachment. One of the tools they used was obviously culture, and one of the people that they began to cultivate was the young Michelangelo, who came to Florence in the 1480s. And this uh, 17th century fresco down here is a sort of fanciful reenactment of the young Michelangelo bringing his fawn to show Lorenzo de' Medici in his, in his garden, which was a little bit north of the palace, where artists would bring their products for discussion. Um, but it's true, he lived, Michelangelo lived in the palace. He was a close, uh, a close friend to the Medici family, and his early projects were produced under their auspices. Uh, unfortunately, as you may know, 1492, a very momentous year for us here in the New World, uh, was also the year that Lorenzo the Magnificent very unexpectedly died. And this threw Florence into something of chaos because his heirs were not as adept as he was at managing this sort of relationship between the family and the Republic. 
and they are thrown into exile. Uh, the sort of extreme Dominican monk Savonarola takes over. He wants to prepare Florence for the momentous uh, year of 1500, which many people thought might be the year of the Second Coming, and basically ca cancels all artistic projects and all commerce because you're supposed to be concentrating on your, on your soul and on the afterlife. And the Florentines tolerate this for a couple of years, but then they decide they can kind of handle 1500 on their own. Uh, Savonarola is excommunicated and executed, and right around the year 1500, we have the restitution of the Florentine Republic. Michelangelo, meanwhile, had, had left the city because there, there wasn't much for an artist to do. He was in Bologna and Rome, but when the, when the, uh, when the Republic is reconstituted in August of 1501, uh, there's a new constitution that is established the decision is made to give this great block of marble that's been moldering low these many years beside the Duomo to create a new commission for to commemorate the new republic. And just to make sure we're going to wrap a bow around that, Michelangelo's commission for this thing, same month as the Constitution is instituted, re makes reference to the Constitution. And that this is, I mean, so it's not just me saying this, it's Michelangelo and Soderini, who is the, the patron of this thing. Um, it was a very famous commission. Leonardo da Vinci wanted it. Both of them are in Florence uh, at the time competing for it, and there's a wonderful story in David's slang of them running into each other in the street and trading insults and almost coming to blows. They hated each other. Um, but the decision was interesting. Machiavelli wanted Leonardo, and Soderini wanted Michelangelo, and he won out because he was young, and everyone knew that carving this thing was going to be a massive physical labor and very challenging technically. And one of the things Michelangelo wanted to give was a very theatrical impression that he was basically just liberating a pre-existing figure from the block of marble, which is a very romantic impression we have of him to this day. And so he built a, a structure around it so you couldn't see. Um, and the other crafty thing he did is late in life he burnt most of his drawings and letters. So we have a very limited uh, knowledge of his creative process. But one of the ones he saved is the one on the far screen, which says in Italian, as David did with his sling, so I do with my drill. Uh, I think a very clear piece of evidence that Michelangelo understood what he was doing as a political act, as something he was doing to commemorate the, uh, the Republic. When the statue was revealed, of course, it was a massive success. You can think of that as a somewhat high-risk strategy because if it hadn't worked out, uh, revealing it would have been a fairly unfortunate event. But it caused massive uh, celebrations in the city. The decision was made not to put it in the Duomo, but rather to put it in front of the Palazzo Vecchio, the seat of the Florentine Republic, where it would stand on guard. Um, for future generations of the threats that were going to perpetually come against Florence. And I think that's why Michelangelo ultimately chose the moment he chose. There are numerous statues of David around Florence. The city really identified with the biblical figure. But this one is unique in that it shows the moment before the context with Goliath. And as well as its physical beauty, I think its psychological intensity is what makes it such a powerful figure because you, you are compelled to think about you know, what, what is David thinking? He's clearly concentrating intensely. And then as you, as a little human, are looking up at this colossus, if that's David, 
gee, what's coming you know, down the hall? Something even more enormous. So you as the viewer get caught up in this, this very intense implied exchange between David and Goliath in which you are an actor. And I think that's one of the things that, that makes the statue so successful is the way it draws the viewer in as a participant in the drama. Now, unfortunately, uh, the Florentine Republic did not have a long second act. And by the, uh, the mid-1520s, it was clear that the Medici were going to come back. And they had had two, they had two successive popes, as you may know, Leo X and Clement VII. The, the sort of center of family power shifts to Rome, but they always have an eye closely on Florence. And so as, as those decades go on, they again are consolidating power, but they're not going to make the same mistake twice. And the Medici intend to come back very much as an imperial family, which they do in 1529. And Michelangelo actually comes back to Florence for the final defenses. He builds some of the ramparts, and he participates in them. And when they, the imperial forces finally triumph, he actually goes into hiding. Rumor has it in the basement of San Lorenzo, and this, there's, the, there's this sort of little hole they show you that he theoretically hid out in for six weeks. Um, but eventually, the Medici very much encourage him to come out because they have no interest in persecuting him. They want to assume him. They want him to work for them. And eventually, he does. Uh, he goes back to Rome, and he will work for the Medicis, both the Pope and then the, the Dukes, then the Grand Dukes of Florence, and become a, a, eventually the Grand Dukes of Tuscany. Uh, executes major projects for them, but he refuses to come back to Florence. And he lives, as you may know, a very long time. He lives until 1564, steadfastly in Rome. And the only, when he comes back, he comes back because he, he died, and the Medici bring his body back and have a huge state funeral for him in Santa Croce, declaring him then a Medici artist. And as you can see here, this is where the now copy of the David stands in front of the this town hall of Florence. Um, but it was then moved. And as you may know, when you go see the David, you don't see it in the Uffizi. You see it in the Academia, in the Academy, established by the Medici to produce artists. And they make Michelangelo the cornerstone of that. So as you see the statue now, you see it in the academic context created for it by the family. And I think that very crafty act of appropriation is one of the reasons that its original context has largely been lost. They were very effective in PR, the Medici were. And so that's, that's what has happened to it and launched it into, as I said, this, this very aesthetic tradition. And I don't want to take the time today, but in, in the book, uh, we have one of Michelangelo's poems from the end of his life when he, he mourns the loss of the Republic. So it's clearly something that's very strongly with him uh, up until the end. The second piece I'd like to talk about today is Albert Beardstadt's uh, Rocky Mountains Lander's Peak, uh, an extraordinary painting, as you can see from a rather dramatic date in our history, 1862. Um, and one of the first paintings, actually may be the first large-scale picture, because Beardstadt and his contemporaries did some smaller ones, to be done of the American West. And so for me, this picture became very much a document of manifest destiny and the notion that the United States, this experiment in democracy in the New World, which was, in the 19th century, as you may know, hi highly controversial, 
and certainly not universally accepted, uh, that this visually documents the impulse to move west to establish a larger uh, democratic nation to increase the number of states and really to, to farm, if you will, to exploit these extraordinary resources that were opening up as you approach the Pacific. And we'll get back to the picture in a moment, but a little bit of backstory. Um, this map, obviously, of the United States shows you Beardstadt's western journeys. He took a number of them throughout his life, and there he is down there. We're looking at this red journey up here is what we'll be talking about. Um, and I'd like to introduce you to someone I think most of you probably don't know, Frederick Lander, one of the great Americans of the early 19th century. He was basically uh, American aristocracy, grew up in Salem. Both of his fathers and his mother's family were extremely wealthy. His uh, mother's father was the wealthiest man in the colonies, having a, 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 a fortune of some million dollars. Um, so you can see we've had a little bit of inflation. But he went to Andover. He went to the military academy across from Dartmouth. Um, so he was academically extremely gifted, but he was also a man of action. Throughout his life, Lander kept saying, the worst thing that can happen to me is to be made to sit still. Um, and so he actually left college the week before graduation to start an ice business with his brothers. But he got the Western bug very quickly, uh, was an army officer, a colonel. And the way the American government, which then was much blissfully smaller and less intrusive, the way they were managing a lot of this Western surveyor was surveying was through subcontracting. So somebody like Lander could say, I would like to take this season, I will go out and I'm going to work on a road to what's going to be the Oregon Territory, the so-called Honey Lake Road, which is going to be a good road because there were a lot of bad roads. You might know about the Donner Party, which goes astray, uh, goes down a literally a bad path and winds up marooned in a snowstorm and there's cannibalism and it's horrible. And people are reading about this in the papers. It's sensational and are very concerned about going west. And so this is one of the things that Lander very much wanted to achieve in the government were safe roads that would create easy passage and be reliable. So Lander goes out in uh, 1857, 58, the summer of 58, and has a remarkably successful season. So much so he comes back ahead of schedule and under budget. And then is now, this is a shocking development in Washington. They said in the paper that it should be emblazoned on the walls of Congress in gold letters as an example to others. And this caused a fair amount of consternation amongst his competitors, including his predecessor, a man named William McGraw, who was never on time and never under budget. He was notoriously corrupt. So McGraw decided he would try to kill Lander. And he got, accosts him in the lobby of the Willard Hotel. I think about it every time I walk into that hotel with a kind of slingshot. Uh, it's lead on a leather thing. And he starts whacking him over, over the head and draws blood, but Lander's a huge guy. He was the same height as Abraham Lincoln and had a habit of doing things like uh, wrestling grizzly bears. So he was able to clean out McGraw, but it was clear that it was time for him to get out of the city. Now, meanwhile, uh, his close contemporary, Albert Beardstadt, had had a very different path. Beardstadt was the son of Prussian immigrants. They lived in New Bedford. His father was a barrel maker. And the thought was that the parents had come to the United States to have more opportunities for their children, and they expected them to be craftsmen. 
And Albert, who was clearly very driven, uh, astounded them one day by saying he was going to be an artist. And they said, well, you don't have any talent. And he said, well, I can learn. And what's more, I think this is going to be an extraordinarily successful business. I think I can really make a go of this. And so they said, OK. Uh, and he actually went back to Europe to train, cut forward a quick sec, with uh, Emmanuel Leutz, who paints Washington crossing the Delaware in 1852, one of the great history paintings, which takes for the for one of the very early ones that takes an American subject and makes it as grand as a, a subject from, say, ancient history or church history. And Leutz uh, became, becomes Bierdstadt's teacher. And it was actually very, this was a very hard decision for me to make between these two pictures uh, because I think they're, they're both very important documents. And Bierdstadt is very aware of the success of this picture, which causes a sensation. When it's exhibited in New York, People buy tickets. They come to see it. The child Henry James is taken to see it. And he says, oh, you know, I witnessed Washington crossing the Delaware. And he talks about the cold and the ice and that he very much was there. And as you look at the picture, though, as, as compelling as it is, you think, well, it's nothing of the sort. If you know much about what Washington did that Christmas night, it was a very underhanded bit of business. Uh, certainly not this kind of grand uh, passage across the river. But what Leutz is capturing here is that sense of inevitable triumph, which was absolutely absent that night, but which, in hindsight, is, embodies Washington's success. And so he was very much trying to create an inspirational picture. And what Leutz actually conveniently, again, wrote down was, I conceived of this picture in the revolutionary year of 1848 to inspire other Europeans to embrace democracy. So this is very much a democracy promotion picture. But as I said, it was also a great commercial success. He sells it for $10,000, an extraordinary sum, and Beardstadt is enormously impressed. So Beardstadt is then, in the summer, or the spring, rather, of 1859, hopefully this will go back, also in Washington, as is Lloyd's, and Lloyd's introduces Lander to Beardstadt. And Lander is on the verge of going on his second surveying, uh, his second surveying enterprise into the West. And he decides he wants to take artists. And one of the things Lander did, he was the true Renaissance man, was he gave a series of lectures at the Washington Art Association. And in the one he gives right before they leave, he talks about why he wants to take artists West. And he says, it's because we have left no monuments behind us. And he had read his Thucydides. He knew that Pericles had declared in front of the Parthenon, everyone will always remember the Greeks because of our monuments. Uh, but nobody was really producing much in the United States. And he said, if we want to be remembered for what we have attempted and achieved, we need our own art. And so he wanted to take artists with him. Bergstadt says, take me. And he agreed. And the day I set out from St. Joe's, Missouri, which was where the railroad line ended and where the Pony Express began uh, in, I guess, late May of 1859. And they get all the way into Wyoming Territory, where they meet up with the Shoshone Indians under uh, Chief Washaki. And Beardstadt did some wonderful sketches Along the way, that's a surveyor's wagon down there, so you get a sense of the so-called prairie schooners that they were traveling in. 
And these are some of his sketches from life of the Shoshone. He was also taking photographs at the time. And the whole thing culminates, uh, I just want to get to the picture for a moment, we'll get back to that, in a, the night of J July 3rd, 1859, when the Shoshone and the American, or the, uh, the surveyors joined together in an in independent celebration right at the feet of the Rocky Mountains. And there's a wonderful account of them all dancing and setting off, uh, setting off firearms and celebrating what could happen in the West. But as you may know, 1859, uh, a perilous year. And oops, let me go back one more. The Civil War is already uh, beginning to tear the nation apart. Lander has to rush back. He is promoted to general uh, and given a job training sharpshooters in Virginia. And Leutz and Beardstadt go out and visit him and actually see in October uh, of 62, uh, 61, I might get my years slightly messed up there. Uh, they actually observe uh, some of this training going on. And this is one of the first uh, pictures of not of a triumphal general or a great battle but just everyday uh, men in the field firing on a kind of nondescript target. Very sadly, literally 10 days after uh, Leutz and Beardstadt returned to Washington, uh, Lander's mixed up in the terrible failure at Ball's Bluff. He's basically brought in to clean up the mess uh, that others had made, and he's shot through the, uh, through the leg at Edwards Ferry and doesn't take care of himself. And keeps trying to, to fight. He keeps saying, if you just give me action, I will get better, but very sadly dies in, in February of the following year of 62, which acts as a catalyst on Beardstadt, who had not started what he wanted to be his great Western picture yet. He had brought all of his stuff back, all of the Indian objects, the sketches, the photographs, the diaries, the letters, uh, and he had had them all in his New York studio, along with a large canvas, larger than anything he had ever painted. And this, the Lander's death inspires him to get going on a mountain that he actually lobbied Congress to name Lander's Peak. Uh, and that's sort of some ongoing research of mine, what happened to that project. Uh, but that it was something the artist wanted to do very specifically and to commemorate this extraordinary vista that he, he had seen, but so many others had not, and give viewers back east the opportunity to see what was opening up out west. Now, one of the criticisms that's frequently leveled at Beardstadt is because he was a photographer and a very realist painter, that he simply painted what he saw, so that this picture maybe isn't that interesting. It's simply a recreation of reality. Again, nothing of the sort. Uh, this is a pastiche. Th this does not exist anywhere. It is something that he has created in a kind of idealized fashion, which follows the rules of classical landscape painter, painting, foreground, middle ground, background, water element leading you back through, large vertical in the center. So he's really following the classical rules. And he has created a utopian vision here. Uh, the details are lots of fun if you get to go to the Met and see this picture. He's obviously observed them closely from life, but this is the most clean, organized, peaceful Indian encampment that you would ever hope to see. Uh, everybody is perfect and lovely, and you, if you, as you start to dig into the picture, you realize this is not the West as it was, it is the West as Beardstadt imagined it could be. And as we are in 1862, 
the war is at its height. Uh, this is, I think, for him very much an expression of, of which would be very much President Lincoln's vision of how we could look west and the, heal the nation and really stabilize it through what could be found there. And for uh, very much for Lander and for Beardstadt, this was not a pristine location to be kept this way. This was something that should be farmed, it should be exploited. This was going to be the backbone of the country. Now events moved very quickly after that. Uh, as you may know, we have Lincoln at Gettysburg uh, giving his famous address in which he asserted that the experiment in democracy had not been a mistake, that it would persevere. Uh, the pictures that we've been, been discussing, and this is how they're exhibited now when you go to the mat there right, right next to each other, which is fun, but they actually participated in the war effort. There was uh, the so-called Metropolitan Fair in New York in the spring of 63, with, in which both pictures uh, appeared, which raised money for the Union hospitals. So they wound up being active participants. But even as these events were going on, uh, uh, Beardstadt was already on his way west for his, his next journey in search of his next subject. Now I just wanted to close today with a brief discussion of why all this matters. Uh, it is history, it is something uh, from the reasonably distant past, uh, but why, why does it matter today? And for me, it happened that the publication of the book coincided with a little noticed uh, news event, which was the visit of the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, to Europe in January of this year to drum up economic relationships. He was trying to interest European countries and invest, uh, companies rather, and countries in investing in Iran. And in part of his visit, he went to the Capitoline Hill in Rome and the uh, Italian Prime Minister Renzi hosted a lunch for him. But before the lunch, they put boxes around the classical statues so that they would not offend the eyes of the visiting Iranians. And I thought this was extraordinary. And it, no one will answer the question, did they ask for it or did you preemptively do it? But both are equally bad. Um, I mean, Rouhani was not there as a conqueror. He was there to ask for something. And you know, the old saying is, when in Rome, you do as the Romans. You don't impose your cultural values on them. You could look the other way. You could say, we're not comfortable with this venue. But you don't self-censor. And I think that is what we're in danger of doing now, that in our sensitivity to other people's cultural traditions, we are willing to censor our own rather than celebrate what we've achieved. And particularly for the context of David's sling, this was particularly poignant because uh, the Brutus, who's the subject of the second cha uh, chapter, who you see down there, uh, that statue originally stood on the Capitoline, the heart of the Roman Republic. And the, the statue is now in the Capitoline Museum. So the great foundational monument of the Roman Republic had to be witnessed descendant was doing to its own culture in response to a much more oppressive source of, of our oppressive type of government. So it, I'd like to conclude our formal discussion there, but I'd be very interested in answering any questions you may have uh, about any of the objects in the book uh, or about the two that we've discussed specifically. So thank you very much. Thank you, Victoria, so much.
and we'll be happy to take questions. If you just raise your hand, Mike will have a microphone, I'll have one, and we'll pass it around. I learned from my boss to dodge the difficult ones. So. You mentioned at the beginning you have three different projects that you're working on, and one of them is this one. What is there a common theme throughout all three pro projects that you're trying to convey? I'm not good at following direction. Um, the, there's both a common theme and a common structure. The theme is to explore what I consider to be the really foundation stones of Western democracy, political being democracy, moral being Christianity, and then this, this interest in the individual, which really is unique. And then structurally, each of those three things have inspired works, works of art of extraordinary quality. And I just don't think that's an accident. So each of them will be illustrated. This happened to be 10. Christianity will be 12. The individual autobiography, I, do, I just don't know yet what number that will be. Um, that may be six, but don't hold me to that. But that's, that's the way that's going to work, hopefully. Anyone else? Relative to other countries, America strikes me as particularly hostile to any sort of public funding for the arts. In fact, even uh, in the Capitol, we had a <clears throat> public official self-censoring his own statue. I went in the lobby. I wondered if you could speak to that and how people who do think that, that art history and the arts are very important, what we can do to, to better support that. Well, I have a mixed view on that, and actually my old boss, Don Rumsfeld, paid for his own portrait on the grounds that he already had one in the Pentagon from his first tour as secretary, and that he didn't think the taxpayer should be on the hook for the second. So he paid for it, and the Washington Post, in its inimitable fashion, ferreted that fact out. Um, I mean, clearly a number, I mean, these objects are all public works, and they are done specifically to commemorate a a system of government. And that, I think, is an important role for the government. What I think is more concerning is the notion that government funding can be disinterested and that if you establish the government as the funding source for just general creativity, then I think you wind up sapping private sources. I, I think in many ways sapping creativity, that, that you sort of assume this unlimited funding stream with no conditions. Um, and I think both in the, in the humanities writ large, but then also in the fine arts, that has not been as productive as we might have hoped. So I do think there is a role for the government as a patron of the arts, um, and certainly in supporting artistic endeavors, but I would be concerned about having that become the, the default source of funding. Really enjoyed um, your presentation. Thank you very much. Uh, this is a little bit maybe off um, from the main topic here, but and feel free to obviously uh, comment as you will. Do republics in your um, research and thought 
uh, devolve into um, the uh, what we what many would consider the negative side of democracies, if you know what I mean. There is that inevitable. Well. I guess yes and no is the short answer. Um, the conclusion of the book deals with Tocqueville and how he assessed very much that challenge. And he talks about the apprenticeship of liberty uh, and that nothing is harder than remaining the apprentice of liberty and that you can descend into basically mob rule or dictatorship. And certainly, I mean, the first chapter on Athens is one of the most poignant because Athens devolves within a century. Of this, I mean, and they know what they've done. They're like, yay, we have democracy. We are the greatest. And then phew, the whole thing goes to pot. So it, I mean, that happens. Venice, enormously successful for a 1,000 years. I mean, 700 to 1,700, basically, you have democracy in Venice. Now, it's, it's an oligarchy. It's a very specific form. But for them, enormously successful. Uh, you know, and that, that's ended by Napoleon, and that's an act of God. Um, you know, Rome, 500 years, then the empire. So there are so many different trajectories. France, you know, the very short First Republic. Um, so I, I don't think there's a, an inevitable progression, but there is a progression. And I guess what's not inevitable is the survival of democracy. So as we deal with democracy promotion issues in our own time, I think we fall into the trap of thinking it is an inevitable linear evolutionary process. Everybody wants to be democratic. It will happen. And it, sometimes it does. I mean, if I had told you 70 years ago Germany, Fran uh, Japan, and Israel would be three of our great democratic allies, you would have laughed me out of the room. It wouldn't have seemed possible. But it is. Now, at the same time, we've seen the challenges of democracy promotion. If you make that your prime directive as a policymaker, I must promote democracy first and foremost, then you run into another set of problems. So I think no nothing is inevitable, <laughs> but something will happen. It's not a very elegant answer, but it, uh, it, it, there's not a, a hard rule. I think there's always hope. I mean, as I mean that we are doomed. <laughs> Don't listen to Paul. Uh, no, I mean, and I think that's why I wanted to raise, you know, Germany, Japan, and Israel. This is great. This is terrific. I mean, and these are the opportunities we have right now. You know, it quite frankly drives me nuts. I think it drives Paul a little nuts to hear that we're going to cuddle up with the Cubans and they're going to cure cancer. You know, it it's ridiculous. I mean, why aren't we cuddling up with the Israelis who actually are curing cancer? Um, you know, and who are our democratic friends and allies. And so I feel like we, we are squandering some of our opportunities right now. So, so art helps shape culture and political ideas, but it also re reflects it too. So I, I guess with that in mind, with current art as it's being created more in you know, on the art houses and what is on display, let's say, in the Getty and other places. Are, are, you, are you hopeful about the current art as encouraging the building up of democratic republic ideals, or is it tearing away at it? Is it kind of deconstructing um, our current democratic I'm, republic? I'm very concerned. Um, and that, I mean, that there, there's a book called The New Philistines, which is out on this topic uh, by Sobram Amari, who writes for the Wall Street Journal. He brave man went into the London contemporary art scene and said, what on earth is going on here? 
you know, that this whole, the, that artistic production has gotten away from any notion of excellence uh, or relative value and completely assumed into identity politics. And that is not turning out to be a productive, uh, a productive source of inspiration. So I think, you know, I personally like my artists dead because um, they don't they don't argue, but so I mean what I deal with is traditionally historical. I think certainly there is great hope, you know, that that more objects will be, con you know, that that we'll shake this off as a context. But I don't think it's going to happen in London or New York. You know, I think it's going to happen, you know, Sydney or Tel Aviv or Beijing. I mean, somewhere, somewhere that is not as consumed. Uh, by this kind of postmodern mentality. So very much hope, but maybe not right here. Um, this may be getting into your next book, but uh, you know, part of the, the, the hope or the no hope or the loss of, of what we have, of what we would think was once great, uh, the moral dimension of that and the, the loss of virtue and the loss of morality as being something objective seems to be the root cause and how do we reclaim that well that that is a, a that's a big question um and it is what i want to explore in the next book what what got me to thinking about that one is that for most of i mean for most major monotheistic religions making images is taboo it's prohibited for christianity it's been a compulsion that I mean, from the earliest catacombs and scratch, I mean, St. Luke being an artist, scratching images into the walls of the catacombs, it's something that Christians have always felt an intense desire to, to do. And what can we learn from those images and from the structures uh, that are created? Um, and, you know, how does that reacquaint us with our moral code? Um, because as with David Sling, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat the story. I don't want to say, oh, you know, everything was always wonderful in, you know, medieval France. It wasn't. Uh, but at the same time, one of the things that I found very inspiring about this book, and as I, the next one's called Seeing the Light, the, as I started to work on Seeing the Light, is it is the humanity that makes it inspiring and how fallible we are. I mean, we should fail. I mean, we do all sorts of terrible things. But then every once in a while we get it together and do something extraordinary. And that's really inspiring. And so if the book can act as example at all for recapturing some of those principles, uh, that would be a big success in my opinion. There's art, there's bad art, as you've shared, and then there's no art. Can you speak to maybe a lack of art in the Western church? So you're talking about this Christian tradition of art, but how about to the lack of art and uh in the contemporary church or yeah. oh uh again I'm the contemporary's not really my thing. Uh and that book ends at the end of World War Two with the Le Corbusier Church of Notre Dame de Haute, which was built out of the rubble of World War Two. Uh the last two chapters are Gauguin and Le Corbusier. Um you know it's certainly it is an issue. Uh you know that that the church is no longer commissioning, prioritizing art as, as a means of communication. And that's one of the things I want to get to with, with these projects and with why I think art history is something we want to pay attention to, is that it is a wonderful communications tool. 
you know, if, if I'm standing here talking at you for 45 minutes and you don't have, you know, Michelangelo's David to look at, you can naturally glaze over. But if you have something beautiful and inspirational to look at, which coordinates ideally with what I'm talking about, it's an imperfect process, but in an ideal world it does, uh, you know, that is a wonderful way of communicating. And I think maybe that has been lost. So. So I'm wearing a, a shirt celebrating the Reformation and Martin Luther. And, and so, you know, that 16th century moment in time, Michelangelo and da Vinci and Luther and, you know, all of these great, great, talented people. Yeah, what, it just seems like that moment in time was incredible. And, and can you speak to why those great figures rose at that particular time and are there you know, certain points in history that just lift up men at that point in time? Sometimes I think it's something in the water. Um, big, big, I mean, there, there isn't, I mean, I, I would certainly accept that there is a grand design to how all of this works, but it isn't even. I mean, you have enormous outpouring, you know, Florence in the 15th century, an embarrassment of riches, you know, Holland. I mean, and, and some of these are democracies that produce extraordinary outpourings of, of creativity. I mean, it's one of the reasons that, that I'm a Renaissance scholar, I mean, the scholar of the Renaissance, is it's, it's an extraordinary time. And, and you do have technological leap for, leaps forward, which are transformational. I mean, the printing press, this sort of thing, the way we are experiencing that. And so I'm curious to see how, how we respond to the abilities that our technology is now giving to us. And I, I, that can be part of, of what's transformational. But then it does just get back to simple human creativity. You know, what made Luther so brave? You know, because that was a brave thing to do. Um, you know, what made Michelangelo think he could carve the block? Uh, and that's, I mean, that's this, the, the human gumption that eventually results in these things. How does uh, your background in art and everything relate to uh, being an advisor of national security for the Senate? Oh, yeah, it's a terrible story. Um, well, it, the, this, it, it, it's, it's boring. I keep telling Senator Cruz we need to come up with something more interesting. Uh, but what it was was I'd always had a sort of dual track between art history and politics, and uh, particularly after 9-11, and this is another technology story, as blogging began. I began writing for a blog called Red State on national security policy, and unbeknownst to me, uh, a Pentagon speechwriter was putting these anonymous blog posts into Secretary Rumsfeld's daily reading folder. And he is fascinated by new technology and so got in touch with the head of our group and said, I would like that military guy to come be the first blogger to interview me. And Eric said, well, we were all pu publishing under pseudonyms at the time. And he said, well, I got a surprise for you, but we can, we can arrange that. <laughs> and uh, he, he, when he retired, he got in touch and said, I want to write a book. And I have every piece of paper ever. I thought he was kidding. He was not. Um, and I want to digitize it, and I want, to, I want this book to be more academic than most have, and do you know anyone who will help me? And I said, no, they all think you have horns and a tail. Uh, and my husband sort of said, well, why don't you do it? And I said, well, because you know, I'm teaching in the fall, I'm very busy. He was like, no, you're not. No, you go do that. So I said, all right. <laughs> Rumsfeld said, okay. 
<laughs> and we did known and unknown, and, and I continued working with Red State, and at our first human meeting, which these, uh, these events overlapped, uh, which was in the basement of, were you at that meeting in 2009 in Atlanta? No. I think this is such an amazing thing. So we're all going to come out of the basement, get out of our pajamas. We're going to human meet, you know, people. And maybe 70 people come, and Eric Erickson asked CNN to send a van across town. They didn't have to send a plane, just a van across town, quick review of these candidates. And they looked at the list, and they said no. They said this is the worst group of people we've ever seen, and they're never going to get elected to anything. And it was Ken Cuccinelli and Nikki Haley and Marco Rubio and Liz Cheney and Ted Cruz. <laughs> and uh, so they proved, them, they proved CNN wrong. It's not hard to do. And um, so I, that's when we met. And what was supposed to happen was when the Rumsfeld Project wrapped, I was supposed to write this. But then Ted got elected, and he wasn't supposed to get elected. And so he didn't have the normal group of vultures clinging on to him. And he asked if, if I'd come down for two weeks and help make sure the Commerce Judiciary and Armed Services staffs were all kind of organized and introduce him to a couple of folks and whatnot. And I said yes, and that was three and a half years ago. So <laughs> that's how that happened. All right, because we love students, one question right here. Okay. Short question, short answer, Victoria. I'm sorry, this actually, wait, is it? Yeah, um, I just kind of had a bit of a silly question, but I was just wondering, you were saying that there's a lot of importance in, uh, you know, all of our art to reflect governmental opinions and stuff like that. And I just was wondering, what would be the distinction of going so far as to basically just be making propaganda, though? Because it's like we had the Washington Cross in the Delaware, and it resembled a lot of Roman art in the sense that, you know, Washington was almost deified. So I just was wondering. Absolutely. I mean, all of these pieces are propaganda for specific uh, forms of government. And the notion that art is ever not propaganda, I think, is uh, it's just misleading. Because either you're, you're either selling the artist or you're, I mean, Art is trying to persuade you of something, uh, a political stance. It might be uh, protest. You know, the Guernica becomes the great protest picture, uh, kind of transcends its original meaning through that. Uh, so as long as, as you know, you know, this is not, and that's one of the reasons I think it's important to tell these stories is so, you know, when you go to Venice, you know, St. Mark's isn't the Cathedral of Venice. That's the palace chapel of the Doges, you know, specifically created to commemorate this wealth and this power. And if you know that, you know, I think you're having a more honest relationship with the object, if you will. Uh, and that, to me, is a more straightforward role for the government to, to play than to say, oh, we're just going to fund any art without any kind of con context to it. Please join me in thanking Dr. Coates. The mission of the Acton Institute is to promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. For more information on the programs and activities of the Acton Institute, visit our website at www.acton.org.